Did you know that 50% of people who have ADHD, including those of you who may be undiagnosed, but you suspect that you have it, also have a sleeping disorder. 50% of people, isn't that crazy? Which probably means a very large percentage of the population has a sleeping disorder and is unaware. Sleeping disorders include like restless leg syndrome, a circadian rhythm disruption, and that is really common for people who have ADHD. It's basically, if your brain turns on at a later point in the day, like like where most people are kind of like shutting down around 9.30, if that's when you're like, your brain starts revving up, it disrupts your circadian rhythm and it's your circadian rhythm that kind of tells your body or your brain when to start producing the hormones that help you to sleep. So melatonin is a hormone that you should produce naturally. But again, if your circadian rhythms are off, you might not be producing enough. So that's a sleeping disorder. I mean, there's so many different sleeping disorders that I don't think people are aware of. And also that people, I think, fail to recognize the fact that if your hormones are out of whack, your sleep is going to be out of whack because hormones control your sleep. Isn't that crazy? That's one of the reasons why when I talk about CBD, CBD is very powerful. It can help recalibrate your central nervous system. It is has more of an impact on some people than others, without a doubt. But when you combine CBD with melatonin and the third ingredient, and this is the key, cannabinol, that is the most, in my opinion, it's like one of the most powerful sleep elixirs that is all natural and it works with what your body needs and already produces. It's not like you're taking a sleep remedy like Tylenol PM or or even alcohol because even those those things may help you fall asleep. They don't allow you to get the good sleep, deep sleep and REM sleep. In fact, if you have an aura ring or if you track your sleep like on a whoop band or any other mechanism where you can see your deep sleep and your REM sleep, you'll see it's completely disrupted. If you're drinking alcohol, if you're doing THC, if you're taking something else to help you fall asleep, don't fool yourself into thinking that just because it helps you fall asleep, it's going to, you're getting sleep, not necessarily. So that's why I'm such a big fan of the sleepy gummy because it has all of those ingredients in it. But there's new research that just came out on cannabinol that I'm like, yes, I've been saying this all along. At least I hadn't seen any research about cannabinol and sleep, but it just makes so much sense. We do know that cannabinol makes people sleepy, but now there's new research to support that cannabinol can aid in minimizing people's, the impact of Alzheimer's, or I should say early onset of Alzheimer's, etc. So that's pretty cool. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg when it comes to sleep and Alzheimer's and brain fog and all of those things. I just know this. When I look at my brain scan, the thing that made the biggest difference sleep. I mean, that's without a doubt, but you can't just say like, I need to get better sleep that I know you're probably listening to this and you're like, yeah, I know I need to get better sleep, but how I'm just saying, I'm not going to tell you it works for everybody, but what do you have to lose if it's all natural? So try the sleepy gummy. It's got all of those ingredients, which means it's probably more expensive. If I'm being honest than some of these other cheapy CBD sleep gummies. But this is like three incredible ingredients in one. We're working on a new flavor right now. I don't know if it'll be out by the time I re- you guys get this, but oh my God, I cannot wait for you to try it. We've been doing research and development on it. It's so good. 
I think I can tell you. Yeah, it's like a honey chamomile. It's really tasty. Again, it's these melatonin is a hormone. So you can't like just try it one night and go, well, I don't know, it didn't work or, or I was, you know, whatever. You have to find the right dosage for you, which is going to take some playing around with. And you got to give it at least a week. To be honest, I like two. I like two gummies. That seems crazy to me because Brett takes two gummies too. But I'm like, yeah, but also he doesn't have ADHD. So I take two gummies and I am knocked out. It's, it makes a huge difference. You can try the Sleepy Gummy from My Soul CBD by going to mysoulcbd.com forward slash Shaleen. All right, that's where you get your big discount. You can also click on the link below in our show notes and we'll hook you up with that discount. Just try it. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's not going to work for everybody, but if you've tried other things, what is more important than your sleep? What's up? What's going on? Oh my gosh, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me here today on The Shaleen Show. I've got a good one for you today. And if you didn't listen already to Monday's episode, I want you to do so. It kind of sets the tone for today's. And if you thought Monday's was crazy, wait till you hear today's. You're going to think you live in an alternate universe, especially when you find out the number of states where what happened to my guest could have happened to you and it's still perfectly legal. And it's going to continue to be that way until we spread awareness. My guest today is Eve Wiley. She's been featured in countless publications, Refinery29, 2020, ABC, NBC. Her story's been widely covered because she really has done a remarkable job of turning her pain into purpose. And you know I love that. Eve Wiley discovered that her father wasn't her father. This is an unbelievable story. It's super juicy. It's going to blow your mind. Your jaw is going to be on the floor. But it's one that if if we don't share this type of story, especially with anyone you know who might be struggling with fertility or who's at that age, you know, because sometimes people don't make it public that they're struggling with fertility. But we've got to spread the word that this is happening and it's legal. And there's basically nothing you can do if it does happen. It is crazy. Eve, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us today. For those people who this is the first time they're hearing your story, do you mind starting like in your childhood? Did you know that you were conceived in a way that perhaps maybe your siblings weren't? No, I didn't. I'm from a really small town in East Texas called Center, Texas. It's about 5,000 people. It is in the middle of nowhere, rural America. And the closest doctor and hospital was 30 miles away. Okay. So my parents were struggling with infertility and they went to you know the local doctor and went through all of their options. And, and what happened was my, my dad, Doug, he had varicose fades around the testes. And what that does is it decreases sperm production. So mm-hmm. he had male infertility factor. And, and they were older parents. My mom was, you know, of advanced maternal age in her late thirties. So I know. So he, so Doug had the surgery and, but his samples were still showing, you know, not great motility. So the doctor encouraged them to look at artificial reproductive technologies. And specifically that was for, to use a donor to use artificial insemination. Okay. And so he gave them this sheet from California Cryobank and it listed all these donors. And keep in mind, this is in the 80s because 
Now you can get on the computer and it's like an a la carte menu. You can buy baby pictures and yeah. windows. it's wild. But in the eighties, it was just one line and it had the donor number. It had his physical characteristics, his level of education and his interest. And that's it. When you say the doctor gave him this, so was this a fertility doctor? It was, yes, he was okay. the OBGYN. And back okay. in the 80s, this was common. This, not not like now when we have these specialists that you go to, this was, he was just kind of a mom and pop one-stop oh. shop. Oh, okay. But he had, because he had a donor program, he had um, nitrous tank full of all of these different donors that he was using. Just in the office? Like it's like the Coke machine? Exactly. Because that's how this industry could operate. It is wild. So they, you know, look over this, they think over it so much, and they they decide on donor 106 from California Cryobank. And he offered them a local donor. And my mom said, absolutely not. Because again, we're from a small small town. town. And how, if if the whole thesis here is, it's not important for your child to know that their donor conceived. If he was saying genetics don't matter. So don't tell mm. her, which oh. we know better than that now. That, so the this, doctor was actually telling your parents at the time, we're going to do this. But, you know, my recommendation is that you never tell your child. Right. Correct. Of course. That. And yeah. And and we know anonymity breeds fraud. Mm, and so that's a good point. Say that again. Anonymity breeds fraud. When mm. you are allowed to operate and exist behind a cloak of secrecy and anonymity, Mm-hmm. There, there's nobody holding you accountable. Right. So it's, you know, that, that's an important part of it. But they they said no, because how am I supposed to know that when I'm going to the grocery store and I see John Smith and I'm like, oh, my God, he looks like my daughter. Right. We're almost done. And so she was really and she's a nurse and she was really focused on that biodiversity concern of accidental incest, mm. which to this day, the fertility industry is still not concerned with accidental incest. It's actually kind of mind blowing. So anyway, so they they go through the whole insemination process. It took a while. And then they finally had me. And then they were so surprised to learn that when I was three months old, my mom was pregnant again. But this time it was from her husband, Doug. Oh, so they were able to get pregnant. So I have a little sister. Her name is Joanna, and she's 14 months younger than I am. Does that Ever, I mean, when you say something like that, and I already know about how deceitful this whole thing was from the beginning, does it make you sometimes wonder if, in fact, your father's, your your mother's husband, I should say, Doug, we'll call him. So does it make you wonder if Doug really did have that low of a sperm count or if this was just a money-making operation for him? Absolutely. Mm. Because when I look at my, my, my mother had her medical notes. When I look at it, the first sample that the doctor took, it said low motility. The second sample was moderate motility. So why wouldn't you do a third sample? Knowing that he had already had the surgery, why would he push them towards a donor? It didn't really make a lot of sense unless he was just trying to make money, right? And it's an expensive procedure. Uh, Yeah, especially especially back then when you think of, you know, just freight charges of trying to get sperm from California cryobank to Texas and and these expensive tanks. So, yeah, so I have, I have a little sister. We're 14 months apart and we are night and day. She has this beautiful olive complexion skin, dark brown hair, big brown eyes. 
she's a doctor, she's, our interests were so, so different growing up. And then here I was this blue eyed, green eyed girl, you know, bright white blonde hair, very fair skin, freckles. And, and so I, I always knew that, that there was a secret. I just didn't know that I was the secret growing up. So you felt like there's something people aren't telling me. You didn't ever think to yourself, I'm not their child or they brought the wrong baby home or mom had an affair, anything like that. Did that ever enter into your head? Absolutely. Oh, okay. And and people at about what age do you remember the first? Oh, okay. This is interesting. So people would say things. Yes. um, They would always comment about how different we look and, and they would always say, oh, Joanna, you look so much like Doug. And so that was kind of this, you know, oh, well, my mom has black hair, so I guess I don't look like anybody in the family. Yeah. And, you know, there were jokes like, oh, you're the milkman's child. And, and you know, there's also this, this psychological theory called the thought unknown. So I always knew there was something. I just didn't know what it was. And, and that was kind of reinforced through different narratives through people growing up. But it wasn't until I was 16 until I found out the truth. Mm. So... Doug, my dad, he passed away when I was seven years old. And my my mom being a nurse, she recognized very early that my little sister would need a different healthcare plan than I would because he passed mm. away from cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. Oh. And that's when my mom started to wonder, wow, what does Eve need to know? And the way that California Cryobank exists at the time is that I could not seek medical information until I turned 18 years old. And so at that point, my mom started getting on Yahoo messenger boards, talking with California cryobank, just really trying to figure out how to, how to get that information to me, but then also how to tell me, because when you're a seven-year-old kid, a kid that barely understands, you know, they can really grasp the concept of death, right? Seven years old. So how do you tell them, well, it's not your real dad because there's this whole thing called artificial insemination, but an honest sperm donor, blah, 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 blah. And so, so I understand why she didn't tell me and I understand why she struggled to tell me. But I had this habit when I was 16 of going through her emails. She was a school nurse at our high school. Okay. And I would get in her emails and either try and delete, you know, a, an email from a teacher that was like, <laughs> Eve was not Eve, in class today. Yeah, exactly. She did not score too well on this test, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, whatever juicy gossip they were, you know, throwing back and forth. But what I found were all of these emails over artificial insemination, which was not bizarre at first because my grandfather's a cattle rancher. I've oh, you know, heard okay. all about this forever. I oh. know about bull sperm and blah, 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 blah. But the California th- part was throwing me off. And I started to read them. And then I saw my birth date. And, and that was the moment. That, that was the secret right there. I was the secret. Did you literally feel that in your body when you saw your birth date? Like, I'm not supposed to be seeing this. This, uh-huh. this is it? Yeah. And Wa- also, like, Walk me through that moment. Like, can you remember specifically what you felt? Relief. Oh, Relief that, that that I find that I wasn't crazy. Relief that that I I had always felt like I didn't really belong in this town. I had always felt like I'm not even sure I belong in this family. I don't look like anyone in my family. It doesn't mean I don't love my family. I love my family, but it just it always felt different. And so this was just the confirmation that I wasn't crazy. That there was a reason why I felt different because I didn't know my genetic identity. You're 16, you're reading these emails, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're reading these emails, 
you see your birth date, you're 16, so you probably don't know a lot about what it is you're reading. Were you able to just from those emails go, holy cow, this is what happened? Or did you have to at least have enough information that you could say to your mother, I know the secret? I could say to her, I know the secret. I didn't Mm. know the details of, you know, the infertility and, you know, infertility this time was so stigmatized, but I knew enough to be like, I am donor conceived Mm. that they use an anonymous sperm donor. And I got a lot of that language in there as well. Did you immediately go to your mother? It was really late at night. So, so I waited and the next morning when I woke up, she was already in the shower and I couldn't wait. I just like burst in there and she's getting out of the shower and I'm like, mom, I know why you need Glamour Magazine because Glamour, she kept asking me to pick up Glamour Magazine and she's not a magazine reader, but Glamour Magazine, she had been talking with them and they were coming out with this issue about donor conceived people. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, I know that Doug is not my father. And she just started bawling, just bawling. And, and I was like, it's okay. It's okay. But I I have questions and I need some answers. But, you know, I was just so naive at 16 and I had been fed so much, you know, kind of forced gratitude, which I think if you're adopted or you're donor conceived, you, you naturally get a lot of that of, you know, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for that person or, you know, you, sometimes it makes you feel like you're less than because you just want to know who your biological parents are. Right. You just want, you just want that. But I had this like Disney princess outlook on this and, and I was excited because in part I still had a dad. And I lost mine when I was seven years old. And so this in part was exciting for me because who is he? And he's from California. And, you know, so it just, it felt like a second chance. Did you, in that first conversation with your mom, say to her your wishes to see him, to know who he is, or did that come later? No, at the very end of it, I told her, I was like, I want to find him. And she was very good. You know, she's always been so supportive. And, you know, I recognize I didn't have a recipient parent, Doug, who, you know, we weren't protecting the secret of infertility. Mm -hmm. And so those complications in those relationships and those dynamics, they get, they get very complicated because, you know, you you have, there's just, it gets really complicated. So I didn't have that. So I was able to quickly move forward in, in order to try and find him, but she was really good about, you know, Hey Eve, here's a reality check here because I don't think he's probably expecting it 18 years later for you to come knocking on his door and it be a happy ending. But I was so naive and so young that in my head, it was always going to be a happy ending. It was always going to be, I'm going to call him dad and it's going to be wonderful. And it wasn't until much later when I started reading some of the stories my mother collected that that's not usually the case. And so, so, so I did become kind of fearful of how is he going to respond to me? I mean, 18 years probably had a family by this point, right? So you discovered it though at 16 and the law or whatever the agreement was that you weren't able to reach out to the donor until you were age 18. So is is that accurate? So then you went two years Mm -hmm. like dreaming and fantasizing and painting this picture of what your life is going to be like and, you know, how how much you look alike and all these things. I can't imagine how fantasiful your brain can like picture what is possible and how excited you must have been so excited i mean even just i remember going to the mirror and just trying to map out the features of okay so 
that's my grandmother, you know, the cheekbones and, and, but there's so much that was not familiar. There was so much that, that I just didn't identify with. And then, and my, my interest. And, and so in my head, all of those things helped me just paint, you know, who, who is it? Right. Did you look at strangers and go, that could be my dad. I would look at, at, at people growing up and be uh-huh. like, I wonder or if they're TV. my half siblings. Oh, at one point my mom has a story and she's, and she's like, Eve, you literally said to me, Hey, my dad could be Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and I think it's because at 16 in a small town, that's the only person I knew who lived in California. <laughs> uh-huh. That's great. I love it. I so there's also a good possibility, if I'm not mistaken, that you can reach out to him at age 18, but he could also deny contact with you. Right. So the way that works is I had to go to my mom's doctor and we had to get her medical records. And and that was the verification process to say donor 106 on day whatever. And that's the donor that he used. And the language of that is important because it says AID, which stands for artificial insemination donor and AIM, which means artificial insemination mixture. Mine said AID, so that kind of cleared the pathway for California Cryobank to be like, okay, well, it was only donor sperm. They verified their purchasing records that the doctor didn't, in fact, buy donor 106. And then they were able to update their medical records. And and what what they did, they tried to contact him. They sent him blank forms to update his medical records. And it took about a year for them, for him to respond back. Because I think oh, at first he thought like, oh, you know, this is, what is this? What is this? Sure. He was like, I don't remember doing it. What is this? This is so long ago. So you then eventually get to meet Donor 106. I do. I, when I submitted everything, the request for them to find him, I asked them to send a letter because I knew that I, I really only had one shot at this. And I had read the fears that people talked about, and I wanted to put all of those to rest. And, you know, really, I wanted my medical information, of course, but I also wanted to know who he is. I wanted a conversation. I wanted to look at the person who is half of me. And so, yeah. So he responded to the letter? He did. And he responded to that, that letter through California Cryobank. And then they forwarded his response to me. And then I forwarded my response back. And then eventually we cut out the middleman. (laughs) And I just, you know, I don't know if you've seen him on any any of the interviews. He is just, he is such a warm and amazing person. And I don't know if it's because he is who he is and I am who I am. It just, it just worked. It just, Mm. it felt so natural. The very first time you met him was, you were how old? I was, let's see, was I 20? I was 20. I think I was a sophomore in college and he flew to Austin. Were you so nervous? So nervous. I remember being in in my apartment and I'm like, you know, I keep like rearranging little things and going, (laughs) looking in the mirror, just waiting for the stress, you know, cortisol rash to like ravage my face. Yeah. And it was a knock on the door. And I remember thinking, oh my God, hurry, open it. Like, cause I was like frozen, you know, I, cause so much had built up to that point. And then as soon as I opened that door, it's like, it all just melted away. And it was just, this mm. be- you know, huge embrace and, and hugs and lots of, oh my gods. And I can't believe it. And, and it just felt so natural. And you developed a relationship from there. Yes. Or what, tell me about your relationship. Like, was it a once in a while kind of thing? No, it, it was, we talked all the time, emailed all the time. And, and we were actually walking down 6th Street in Austin. 
and ran into a friend. And, you know, it's funny. It's one of those moments that I didn't even think twice about it. But later on, he had told me how much this meant to him. And I had introduced him as my dad. I was like, hey, this is my dad, Steve. And, you know, I just didn't even think twice about it. But, you know, that was a defining moment in our relationship. And from then on, I started calling him dad. And we started saying, I love you. And it it was very much this father-daughter relationship. And then when I decided to, well, when I got engaged, it was very important to me to somehow incorporate him into our wedding. And he has a daughter as well. So I didn't want, I didn't want to ask him to walk me down the aisle because I didn't want to take that first away from her. So I was very sensitive to that. Wow, you were so sweet. (laughs) It's very thoughtful. Well, thank you. But I asked him to officiate our our wedding. And at the time when I was walking down the aisle, I mean, everybody was bawling because Blake's dad was walking me down the aisle. Everybody knew the story. And, you know, Steve, donor 106, he was officiating the wedding. Later, I learned it was because the bartenders got confused and they were mixing Deep Eddie vodka they thought it was a mixer and they were mixing it with vodka. So it was just pure vodka and everybody was <laughs> drunk. But at the time I was like, this Good is time. so sweet. Everybody's, you know, Everyone's so a emotional. Mess. Yeah. For the person who's looking from the outside, it's that fairy tale come true. You've had these visions of having this amazing relationship with this amazing person. And here you are now. He's actually officiating your wedding You've got this great relationship. You really respect him. There's no weirdness between, you know, the man who raised you, Doug. It's like you've got this father you never had. Like, it's just picture perfect. Mm-hmm. When did things change? Well, like all fairy tales, there is a, a tragedy in it, right? When when my husband and I, Blake, had our son Hutton, he was our firstborn. Mm-hmm. And he very early on had health issues. And it, but it wasn't until he was closer to two or three years old and he had been undergoing surgery after surgery, exploratory surgery. We could not figure out what was wrong with this child. Mm. So I went and talked to this functional medicine doctor and he was a nutritionist and he said, Hey, how about you take 23 and me plus health and let's get some, you know, genetic variation data on your son, on you and your husband. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So I did that. And it came back and he called and he said, Eve, your son has celiac disease. And I was like, what celiac disease? And so he went through this whole thing of, you know, it's an autoimmune disorder and it's hereditary. And, and so I'm calling my mom, I'm calling dad, I'm calling, you know, everybody in Blake's family. Nobody has an autoimmune disorder, but it's from my side. Hmm. So, so we, we get that figured out with Hutton and he's, you know, he's doing great. And, and, you know, keep in mind, this is when, let's see, this is 2018 when we took that. So commercial DNA testing had been around for about five years, mm-hmm. but it, it was just starting to get really popular for Christmas gifts and birthdays. Totally, yeah. It was getting cheaper and cheaper, right? And California Cryobank had told me that I had a bunch of half siblings, but I was one of the older ones. So in my head, I was thinking they just weren't old enough, Right to take these tests, but also I was just so bogged down with Hutton's illness that I wasn't even thinking about the possibility of more half siblings. So was that something you brought up to, is it Steve? Mm-hmm. Did you ever bring that up to Steve? Like, so do you know how many other children you have out there? Does someone who donates, I don't know the answer to this. Does a donor typically know how many offspring they may have produced? No. Oh. And, and this is the crazy thing about it. 
there's no national registry. There's, wow. there's a registry that is volunteered. When you use a donor, it is not required that you go back and report that there was a live birth. And so when you see sperm banks say, oh, there's no more than 10 offspring per donor, that's not true because they are not required to report that data. In fact, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they recommend 25 offspring per 800,000 people in the population. So, so li- think about what I just said right there. 25 offspring per 800,000 people. That mm-hmm. means in the US, I could have 10,000 half siblings and they consider it to be biodiverse. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's shocking. And, and they're not required to report it. That's why you see these crazy <sighs> numbers of half siblings where they have hundreds and hundreds wow. of half siblings. Okay. Wild. So you do this testing, you see that there's mm-hmm. half siblings. You, when do you discover that your DNA doesn't match Steve's? So we go on, on vacation and I start getting these emails and it's from 23andMe that says you have a, a close match. And I thought that they were first cousins because it didn't come out and say half siblings. And, you know, I, I really hadn't taken the time to look, you know, at what a cinegram was, you know, all this stuff. I, I just wasn't looking. And so I assumed they were first cousins, but that didn't really make sense because even though my mom has two brothers, they don't have biological children. Hmm. And same thing for Steve. He has two half siblings, but but they don't have children. Hmm. So I was like, oh God, there's a family secret. <laughs> oh my gosh. More. But I talked to the first one and he says he's donor conceived. And that, and after Googling a little bit it, and, and talking to my mom, it was my mom that said, Eve, these are your half siblings. So then I was going through trying to find them because they weren't, they weren't answering the 23andMe platform, the messaging platform. And so I was finding them on Facebook, on Instagram, LinkedIn, and two of them were not very active. So the first one knew he was donor conceived. And I mean, bless his sweet little redneck heart. He, I just, it sounds so awful to say. I thought that, because he told me, he said, he knows who our our donor is. And he said, and I said, oh, sweet boy, that's, that's. That's the man that did the procedure. Like that's not. You're like you messed it up. Yeah, I was like <laughs> you read the wrong line. Oh, it's like you just don't even know how this whole thing works. But that's okay. So I called dad and I said, "Hey, dad, there are three people popping up here, but I don't want to. I don't want to be the middleman. I I understand that each family's so different. So how about you take twenty three and me, and then that way y'all can decide how you want the relationship oh. to work because they may not want to be in contact with them. Sure. So, so then I, I talked to the second one and he's 13 years older than me. And okay. I was like, that's weird. But, you know, red flag wasn't, you know, I was like, oh. well, but, you know, maybe something, I don't know. It, it wasn't lining up, but I wasn't thinking about it. Right. Cause I was so okay. sure that Steve was my biological father. And then I finally found that got in contact with the third one. And when we were talking on the phone, he, he's like, Eve, I just, I look like my dad. I have a brother. I look like my brother. And here I am thinking that I'm dropping this bomb on him. And I'm like, you know, Adam, this is, this is what everybody says. Everybody thinks this, but look at our DNA. We are half siblings. And so I was like, okay, okay. I'll humor you. Okay. Just pretend like we're first cousins. Tell me about your uncles. And he said, I only have one uncle and he's actually from your part of Texas. And his name is my world stopped because 
my mother's fertility doctor, the man that was the hero in my birth story for my mom, switched his sperm, put his sperm inside her without her knowledge or consent, and he was my biological father. And that's how you learned. And that's how I learned. And your mother at this point has no idea. Steve has no idea. Mm-hmm. Was there a part of you that said, well, I'm going to keep the secret or I don't know what to do with the secret? Did you struggle with what to do? I did for a few minutes because I, I knew I knew what this meant. I knew how many lives this was going to disrupt. <sighs> and I was also, I mean, I was devastated because one, once again, I'm starting over for the third oh time gosh. in my life. I'm starting over, but but it not only affected me. I mean, this this directly affected my child. Yeah. And and now I'm going to have to be the bearer of bad news, and it's going to disrupt so many other people's lives. There was going to be this ripple effect. So so I I did for a moment think I don't have to say anything. I mm-hmm. I can pretend like this never happened. Hutton, we figured his health out. And I can just live my life. Status quo. Mm-hmm. But, but I knew that I couldn't because yeah. at that point, there was so much deception around my conception. And, and I knew that the only way for me to really live a genuine and authentic life was to, to be able to bask in the light of the truth. And my mom was I don't was think actually, people understand that that was such a courageous decision. Mm. It was a hard decision. A hard decision. I mean, and I, I just want to commend you, Eve, because that... That just speaks to your character because you knew that you were going to cause pain to people who you really loved, that you knew you were likely going to now have other people criticizing you, Mm -hmm. uh, judging the story. You know, you had everything wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow Mm -hmm. and you could have tucked that information away, Mm -hmm. but you knew it was wrong. And And it was hard to make that choice. I can't imagine. It was hard because you're right, knowing that what I was going to say. And I was so fearful because what if Steve, what if, what if dad, Papa to my children just walks away? What if he oh, says, Oh yeah. my God, this is too much. I can't, I, I can't, I, I was not ready for that level of rejection, but also I was not ready to be the, the gatekeeper of this doctor's secret. And yeah. I knew with him being so beloved in our community, I knew that they were going to take his side. I knew that the marginalizing comments of the people of you wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. At least you have doctor's genes. You should just be grateful to be alive. You have a duty to honor your mother and your father. You know, all of that stuff as he hides behind this religion. One woman telling me he was just doing the Lord's work, you know, all of that stuff. And, and I knew it was going to be, it was going to be hard, but it was. And, and thank you for acknowledging that because I don't think a lot of people truly understand how yeah. disruptive this has been. Yeah. And you had to break this news to your mother first? I did. They were upstairs. <laughs> my family's there. My husband's family's there. My sister Joanna's there. And, and they were watching I, Tanya. And I remember, <laughs> I know, right? I remember, you know, after getting off the phone with Adam, once we both realized what this meant, it was like, whoa, we're both in defense because he's like, what are you going to do with this? I'm like, I don't know. And I sat there and I, and I finished my glass of wine <laughs> and, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the last peaceful moment. And I'm just going to soak this up because I've got to go tell my mom. And it was, it was just like 
going back when I was 16 years old again and bursting into her bathroom. Hey, mom, I know. Except this time I go upstairs and interrupt their movie and I tell her and I've never seen someone in shock before. She was shaking to the point where my husband's like, does she need to go to the hospital? And she was asking the same question over and over again. I was telling her she couldn't filter the information. And she kept saying, Eve, no, he would never do this. He is so kind. He is so gentle. He is an amazing person. Eve, he would never do this. I mean, I had to like show her the tree that I built. I had to give her all of my evidence because she couldn't believe it. My question is, what was his motivation? Because clearly he started this. You have a half sibling that's at least 13 years older, mm-hmm. right? Is that the oldest half sibling that you are aware of? Mm-hmm. It is. So what is the youngest? The youngest one is born in 1988. So about a year after I am that we've been able to identify. So there's 14, 15 years that mm-hmm. you know of, right? Mm-hmm. That you know of. It, it could have been longer. Those are just what the is, people that have tested. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What is the motivation? And did you confront him and, and has he accepted culpability? So yes, yes, and yes. You know, I think for him, the motivation was likely due to money because I've been told that, you know, he is cheap and saves a lot and doesn't spend a lot. So I think for him is money. But I think there's also an element of narcissism, you know, especially with with fertility doctors. I mean, you think about this for a second. You have a patient come to you and they say they can't get pregnant. When God has failed to get them pregnant, he is God. He can get them pregnant. And I think that that feeds into a personality disorder oh, that's, you know, so I think that, I think there's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of things. And then I think that there is a piece of him where he was upset when a patient couldn't get pregnant. He knew that his sperm could work. And mm. so, but again, that's feeding into that narcissism, Right. I just don't think he had, obviously he didn't have good boundaries with this, but when you really break down what took place in his office. So, so let's, let's walk through that. This is the 1980s. You have women driving 30, 40, you know, 60 miles to come and see you. There are no cell phones to say, Hey, I'm running late or I have a flat tire. So they're going to wait. He's going to wait till they get in their office. They get in their office. He preps their cervix. He goes into the next room to masturbate, to procure the samplement. He comes in and directly Shut deposits into, up. I mean, think about that. So, so when does the sexual gratification begin and end? And so wow. for my mom and other Eve, victims, you're blowing my mind. they feel like they've been sexually assaulted. And that's not, that's not to compare trauma Olympics to forcible rape. Cause that is what a lot of people say is, you know, oh, it's no, this isn't trauma Olympics. This is traumatic. Yes, this is a man that yes, you had yes, trusted yes. That, that you consented to. And, and that's what the, that's what it all boils down to is just consent and deceit. And so my mom felt that way, but this is the thing that's hard for all of our moms who this has happened to is they feel like as soon as they honor the trauma and say, yes, I am so upset around the deception around your conception, they feel like they are also saying, I wish you weren't here. And that's not the mm. case. And so my mom and I have talked so much about mom, you got to separate the two. You can be so happy that I'm your daughter and so happy that I'm alive and not want to change the world. And you can also be so upset around the deception around my conception. Got to separate the two of those. That's great advice. Uh, Obviously easier said than for her to, to feel. Did you actually approach him? Was it in person? How, how, how did you bring the news to him? 
I did. Or confront him, I should say. It took it took a while for me to because you know, I, I didn't have a lot of information and I still had this Disney princess part of me that was like, okay, this looks bad, but we can make this work. We can work this out. You know, surely he didn't need to do this. It has to be some kind of mix up. I knew better, but you know, cognitive dissonance is an amazing yeah, thing. Isn't it? So I took a while to write him and I wanted it on writing because I I never wanted him to be able to do this. He said, she said thing. So I asked him a lot of open-ended questions And I told him that through commercial DNA testing, it revealed that I'm his biological daughter. And he wrote back saying, oh, it appears that you may have, you know, inherited some of my genes. And I'm like, oh, God, yes, half of them, but it's okay. (laughs) And then he went on through this whole thing about his AID program. And he said that there were through the whole program from, you know, 83 to 86 that there were only five pregnancies, two ended in miscarriages. So there were only three. And he went back and got his donor sperm from when he was a sperm donor in medical school. So those would have been 13-year-old straws. So so I'm, I'm somehow supposed to believe that his dusty sperm from 13 years prior that he just went and got and drove mm-hmm. back. He used that instead of the donor that was fresh. But also, keep in mind, this is in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. So now you have a donor when when the sperm was supposed to be quarantined and tested sperm. Now you have a doctor inseminating his patients with his own sperm and he's been exposed to blood in the OR and he hasn't been tested. I mean, just a huge negligence part to this too. So he said that, well, right off the bat, I knew knew he was lying because there were already three of us. Did you get the impression that you were the first to confront him? (sighs) That's a really good question. Yes and no. Yes, because I feel like I caught him off guard. No, because he had a whole story, but it could Mm. be that he's been, you know, making this whole, yeah, for for a long time. His missteps after make me think that I may have been the first, but he kept going with it. Every time I would poke a hole in, you know, oh, at one point he, he said it was a gratifying experience to deliver my parents a baby girl. I mean, ew. Wow. And and I mean, every time we say. So, Did you meet with him in person at any point after your and, discovery? No, he. And he, he desired to. Meet to. In person. He wanted to. He did. He wanted me to meet with him and with his son, so my, my half brother. His son is in practice with him. So they are both or OBGYNs and practice together. And again, I did not want to do that because I felt like the two on one was weird. But also, I got to be honest. I was a little worried that, you know, you know what if my empathetic side mm. would believe it? And, and this is going back to the, the genuine and authenticity. I knew that, that we could never have a genuine and authentic relationship. I never, never, unless the, the playing field was, was even, because I would always be wondering if he was just talking to me to appease me, to, to keep a secret. And I struggled with this. I struggled so much. I struggled coming forward because I I, I wanted to know him at the end mm, of the day. Mm. I, I wanted, I still, I, I wanted to, to know who he is as a person, even though I cognitively knew that it was never going to work out, but I still wanted it. Once you discover this, you're having these conversations back and forth. Was there ever a point at which he said, you know, okay, you're right. You know what? You, you are my daughter and I'd like to get to know you and let's... Let's form a relationship. Anything? No, he he did it. He said, "Yes, you are my daughter." He admitted oh, he that part. Okay, in writing. Yes, 
in writing. You you are my daughter. Is this um, a crime? It is not a crime. And that's the shocking part is when we were going through this whole thing, I, I was like, this has got to be a crime. He, he's wrong. You can't just do this to somebody. And we went and talked to our ter- attorneys and, and they said, here's the problem is First of all, we don't have laws around this, regardless, in any state or federally. But also in Texas, we have what is called the 10-year statute of repose. And no matter which way you go with this, with the Texas Medical Liability Act, you're always going to hit. And all of those logical claims, like misrepresentation or the torts or sexual battery, all of those things will lead right back to the healthcare liability claims. And you also have a statute of limitations issues. With the medical- Which is how many years? Seven years. Seven years from the date of discovery? From, no, it's two years di- for discovery. <laughs> so I didn't find this out when I was seven. I found this out when I was 30. And so it's, this just brick wall after brick wall after yes. brick wall over and over again. And that here was the bigger choice I had to make. I didn't know the scope of the problem. We have all of these medical issues. My son suffered so much. What if I had half siblings? That they, they, they're going through the same thing and I'm over here and I have the information, I have the key. So yeah, I had no yeah, choice yeah. but to come forward because he could not be honest with me. To come forward, to shake the tree and see what fell out. How many half siblings do I have? And my worst fear was confirmed whenever I had a half sibling who took this test because she had a five-month-old son that died from <gasps> severe GI issues. She did the 23andMe plus health because she wanted to see if there was something genetic. She saw my name and she knew I had already come forward. She knew the story. She is in the community. She will be scrubbing in for a surgery as he's scrubbing out. She has known them and he was her gynecologist. No. Sure was. This is not even real life. This This isn't real life. It's crazy. And there's nothing you can do. There's, There's, you can't call the police. You can't. I mean, it's an unthinkable trauma. It's an unthinkable crime. And it's all legal. It's when all legal. You're, you, so you're coming forward and you're being very public about this. You since turned your this horrible pain into purpose and have mm-hmm. become a lobbyist and are making change. You're an advocate for so many. I assume at some point he try, has tried to stop you or you know, is worried about his own reputation if if he's still in the same small town. Oh, yeah. Has he? Well, but not in the way you may think. I think mm. that he's more concerned about his reputation in, in East Texas. And there, there's like this media blackout in, in East Texas because 2020 came out and then it's like, it's frozen. So nobody what really do you mean? knows. So so I, I was on 2020. That came out. It was exposed. And immediately after that, his preacher at his church of Christ, they, they brought back the old preacher and he gave the sermon about, it's not a crime. He was, you know, an anonymous sperm donor. He gave him exactly what they wanted. She just didn't understand the informed consent. He was doing the Lord's work. Basically I'm the devil. And this is how the devil, you know, will go and destroy a good man, that whole thing. So there was that piece. The gaslighting, and, the victim uh, shaming. It is insane. Well, because he's a doctor. So therefore, mm-hmm. why would we believe the victim? Right. This is rape culture. Rape Literally. Culture. It absolutely it, is. Huh? And then they had someone who, from my childhood, 
reached out to me on Facebook. This is before the 2020 episode aired. Who's then? The church? I'm assuming it was the church. I mean, at one point, his pastor had said that it threw this girl that the pastor wanted to talk to me. And so I was like, okay, what's his number? I'll call him. So I call him. I'm like, what's up? Here's the other side of the story. This is what you don't know. And this is why it's wrong. He didn't believe me. Here I am with medical records. Here I am with all of the facts. But this is this is that tribal mentality. Yeah. And and when yeah. you go against the tribal leader, you pay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the things that people have said of Ugh. about me, <laughs> which, you know, you I, the people who know you, the people who are familiar with the story, you don't get that kind of anyone who has half a brain and really understands our stories is shocked and appalled. But the people who read the headlines and want to buy into the misogyny and want to buy into the the narrative the comments you can get from some of those people are so frustrating, but it just fuels me. And I know it fuels you too. I have oh. to eat, know, Eve, what did you do before this? Because it feels like you're, you're, you were built for this. You were meant to be an advocate. Um, I was a children's therapist and ah. so, and formerly a researcher with sex therapy. And with that, I worked with children who had been sexually assaulted and sexually abused. Wow. And so, so yeah, so I think that you know, really being able to to frame the pain and and to be able to communicate it was part of it. But also, I you know, I really understand that that victimization and and how victims are silenced. And I wasn't going to be silenced. Your first thoughts are, I've got to do something about this. I've got to make a change. Was there some sort of a violation in his behavior and conduct that violated his code of ethics in terms of practicing and the medical board in the state of Texas? No. And initially, I when I started working on legislation in Texas, my whole thing was I'm going to make this about changes, not about charges. And I got a bill passed. And then as every half sibling kept popping up and the lie kept getting bigger and bigger. And and I really felt like, you know what? I can be angry. I can be mad. And 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 there there was no justice for this. Mm-hmm. So we filed a medical board complaint. Actually, Jody Madeira, who's one of the national experts on Dr. Daddy cases, she filed a complaint for me. She works in legislation with me. And they wrote her back and said, we're closing this because this does not fall below our standard level of care. Uh-huh. Do you know so how then- many women I've heard that from? How, how, it's crazy to me. It's so common, not just in, this, obviously, the state of Texas, state of California, but there's just so many women now because of the story. My story has also been public have reached out and said the same thing that they have later followed up to find out that their case was dismissed for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons, things like that, that it didn't, it was below what they considered an egregious standard of care violation, or there's something missing from the report. So the report mm-hmm. was just dismissed. Nothing ever happened with it. This is what happens when you let doctors please doctors, they circle the wagons around their own. It's not, it's not Okay. So I did a little media stunt in Dallas, and then 24 hours later, Texas Medical Board had opened the case again. Who I had contacted were the people that discovered all of the doctor death stuff. Here, We had a doctor mm-hmm. here that killed 13 people before they even opened a case against him. And so they opened the case, but this time they were opening the case under unethical conduct and behavior. And so what ended up happening is... Later, I filed another medical board complaint just to update them. Hey, here are the more half siblings. Every half sibling comes up. I file a new complaint just to because that's, that's the only way I can give them information. 
So responded by filing a lawsuit against the Texas Medical Board, stating that they do not have jurisdiction to take his license under the standard level of care because it's seven years. The medical board is saying that they do have jurisdiction because they're taking his license under unethical conduct and behavior, which does not carry a statute of limitations. Because it's in a lawsuit, they have to leave it up to the courts to decide, which could take five to seven years. So the first round he lost. And what does he do? He appeals it. And during the appeal period, he's able to continue to practice, I assume. Bingo. Yeah. And because he has a restraining order against him, they can't give him a suspension because they can't contact him. <laughs> More loopholes he found. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, th- I just had my hair done two days ago, and I think that the hair salon that I go to has more regulations and has to w- worry more about a-, a violation than doctors. That's true. Hair salons, nail salons, all of them. Isn't that wild? And assuming that they do revoke his license, do you know, statistically speaking, how many doctors have their licenses reinstated or simply suspended or placed on probation for ethical, unethical conduct? No, I don't know. Well, I don't know what it is in your state, but in the state of California, 50% of the doctors who have, for some reason or another, lost their license due to sexual misconduct, 50% of them have it reinstated. They just have to show that they've taken efforts to be rehabilitated. Not like some course that they had. Yeah, to take. and and you know the medical boards in most of our states they are underfunded and mm-hmm. backlogged, and so they just want to get rid of it, and it's much easier to get rid of it. And we've got these incredible lobbyists who are fighting on behalf of these doctors because they don't want to have to pay out any claims for whatever behaviors. So they're really, really well insulated. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you've learned since digging into the research about other states? What do people listening? And first of all, you know, you've made some incredible changes, but when you first start doing your research, was there any state where this was illegal? Yes. California was actually mm. the only state that had a bill in the nineties. And that came out of the Teresa Erickson case whenever she, it was the baby selling scheme mm. and those doctors were stealing embryos yes. and they were selling them. And yeah, but that was the only state, the only That's- state. The only state, but simultaneously, there was a victim of doctor and one of those offspring, Jacoba Ballard. She was working in Indiana on legislation with Jody Madeira. And so our bills passed in the same year, a week apart. Wow. Since that time, how many states currently is it completely legal for a fertility doctor to inseminate his patient without her knowledge or consent? 42. 42 states. 42 states. And we will have a list of those states in the show notes under the audio for this podcast because you need to know if you are one of those states. Absolutely. And I think what people don't know is everything in the U.S. is so regulated, right? People don't know they aren't protected. And what happened, this industry is so unregulated. I'm only one person. And in these bills, you know, I get a lot of criticism from them, actually, because people say, you know, it's not happening anymore. And, and I do believe commercial DNA testing has prevented doctors and will prevent them to do it. But we have laws and people don't follow them anyway. Right. But, but this does more than that, because when, when I go in and talk to a legislator, this bill, this is the Jerry Springer story that can actually, you know, get a little attention to and momentum to, to get passed. And so these are Trojan horse bills to say, hey, guys, this entire industry is unregulated. 
And we have 12.4% of the population struggling with infertility. It is a $30 billion industry. The LGBTQ community uses these resources a disproportionate amount of time. This is not a small percent of our population using this and people are not protected. And so what I have found is that legislators, they don't have the education they, they don't they don't know the difference between artificial insemination oh. and in vitro. And mm-hmm. so they they're not going to make big changes unless they have education. So so these bills provide that education for them. It also touches on two things that legislators are largely really likely to stay away from, which is abortion and then the creation and destruction of embryos. Mm. So right now there's too many people who disagree on artificial reproductive technologies like insurance companies and particularly who's going to pay for it and how much. And all of that started in 1996 when Congress passed an amendment saying that there's not going to be any federal funding for research on embryos. But my point is, is that this legislation is important because if this has partisan support, if we can get both sides of the aisles to agree on this, this is going to determine what technology has on the horizon and what they do with it. Things that we haven't even thought of gene editing, artificial wounds, designer babies. I mean, we just had someone in Australia, they created a human embryo just from human tissue. And so there are so many things that are that are really even larger ethical problems. And if right. we don't figure out what to do now and the things we can agree on, we're not going to be ready for it. I know, Eve, that someone's going to be listening to the story and they're going to order their own 23andMe and perhaps maybe they already have and discover that who they thought was their parent wasn't their parent. I'm sure that you get inundated with emails and people reaching out and then you've become like, okay, who do I go to? I've got to go to Eve. It's the only person I've ever heard the story from. What would you tell someone is their first step if they've just learned that this could possibly be their story? So if if they've learned their parent is affected, it's called NPE. So it's a non-parent expected result. And actually in Facebook, there are so many amazing, amazing groups of people and support. Or if you find out you're donor conceived, we are a donor conceived. Facebook group is amazing. But if you find out if you're doctor conceived, then, then yes, absolutely. Call me. You know, what I didn't have is I didn't have someone to to give me all of my options. And so mm. what I do, and, and you're right, I do, people reach out to me all the time when they have figured out that this is their story. And I connect them with you know, the leading attorney just to give them their legal landscape. Money yep. will never make it right. But unfortunately, the way that the landscape exists, for some people, signing a non-disclosure is the only way. And it may look random, the states I've worked in, but there are victims behind every state. And it's really great if they can, you know, take that money, pay for therapy, take off work for a little bit to go through this trauma, but mm-hmm. then also get legislation passed. But, you, you know, that's also sad that that's, that that's the only way. And here's the problem. We don't even know the scope of the problem because you can get married. You can get buried in an NDA. So when you ask Girl, me if I'm let, first, No doubt. Let, like, well, let's talk for a minute about the NDAs. That's the thing that makes... I don't think anyone could ever possibly understand the scope of how much has happened. Maybe even with the doctor that you're investigating, the doctor that you want to go see. If someone has signed an NDA, you will never know. No matter how horrible the situation is, even if they've killed a patient, if they've asked the family to sign an NDA, you can be great on Google. You will not find that information. Right. That is so irresponsible. How can you make an informed decision of your health when you don't have the full picture? 
And the number of doctors who sue for defamation to silence Mm -hmm. victims and and then say like, okay, listen, I'll I'll drop this defamation suit if you're willing to sign this NDA. Mm -hmm. And so we don't even know the extent to which these things are happening in every single state. How can we help make a change? Because these are our bodies. These these are rights that we need to protect. And we do have patient rights. And unfortunately, you don't learn about things like this until it becomes public and it's sensational enough. And someone who's fortunate enough like yourself to have been able to move it forward and into the public's eye. And some, you know, like myself, I have a platform, but there's so many other women who had the same experience as me, but it just never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've got this platform. We've got this opportunity to ha- encourage other people to to help when it comes to fertility rights and fertility legislation. How can we help? So just asking your legislators, tagging them in any of the posts that you see, I will tell you that the person running the social media account, they are our biggest allies because they see their legislator getting Mm. tagged and and they include that in their morning meetings when it gets attention and people think I'm only one person like this isn't that big you know I I won't make a difference it makes a huge difference if it's an email if it's a phone call tag your governor tag your legislator and you can go to my website which is my name evewiley.com I keep all of my calls to action up to date I make it very easy you click a button populated email. You can send it. You can also message me. I can help you find your local legislators to talk to them. Legislators are scared. They need noise. They need pressure. And that that's what you can do. Anybody can do that from their computer. Let's share some really exciting, cool news that you shared with me. You sent me a text message. You and I connected. I think it was Kate Casey connected us. And, you know, you're telling me your story. And, and I said, well, I'm going to make a, a reel and I'm going to I'm going to make you a collaborator on her. So I just tagged you on it. And it, you know, people were really outraged and shocked to learn some of the statistics that you shared with me. But how did just people tagging their legislators, what kind of a difference did that make? Because you shared some really cool stories with me. So I had four bills that were pretty much dead. And the way that the legislature is is built is you can have a perfect bill with no opposition, but if it doesn't get placed on a calendar because there's not enough noise around it, mm. then it's going to die. And oh. so you did the reel and then Jenna from Connecting Rainbows did her reel that, that knows you. And as soon as you did that, so many people were tagging, made noise. I had four bills, four placed in committees that next week. That's amazing. No, well, I mean, it's that amazing again. that you did it. And and that's so huge because if it stalls, it's done. Then have to start all over. Well, I, I want to say case. thank you for, for offering me that credit, but the credit is not mine. I just made the reel, right? And, and but, so the credit is really due to the people who heard the message, were outraged by it, and did something with their outrage. So the credit goes to every single person who actually then went out of their way to figure out who is it I need to tag. They took Mm -hmm. extra steps. I mean, I didn't do that. You didn't do that. People actually said, I'm going to figure out who the legislator is in my state and I'm going to tag them and I'm going to hound them and I'm going to write them an email. So I just I have goosebumps right now thinking about how happy I am and how grateful I am for this community because they do care. And they don't Mm -hmm. just listen and go, that's outrageous. I can't believe it. On with my day. They take the time to follow up and say, I'm going to be a part of this change. And so that the change in those four states, which we hope is coming, getting those bills onto the floor is because people actually took time out of their day 
to make a change and to do these things and to follow through. So I hope that you, anyone who's listening to this or watching that you'll do the same thing. We're going to put links below so that you can get involved. Take a look at both of our social media platforms, which will also be linked. Look for that content because that's, as Eve said, those things show up on the desk of your legislators and they, Mm -hmm. they don't want that mark on their resume. Mm -mm. And for both sides. I mean, this is a, this is an easy one for women's rights issues for politicians. Share it with your friends too, because the more people that make noise, the bigger an issue. And then we can actually go federal with this and there will be enough level of education to get a whole blanketed bill passed. Let's do it. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to make sure you are subscribed and following along. The Shaleen Show is available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and most every podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell us specifically what you enjoyed. We'd love to know. The Shaleen Show is released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. For Tuesdays and Thursdays, be sure to follow and subscribe to Shaleen's other podcast, Build Your Tribe, which she co-hosts with her son, Brock Johnson. It's all about business, social media, and marketing, and devoted to helping you make more money and live more life. Links to anything referenced in today's episode, as well as show sponsors and other podcasts, can be found below in our show notes.